we've had a great year as a church, 2012, as you just look back and, uh, and uh, look at what God has done in, our, in the life of our church. It's just been amazing. Uh, just to highlight some things here, and you'll probably hear me repeat this uh, tomorrow at the New Year's Eve service. Uh, in July, God just en- en- enabled us to get on God television. Uh, it was something we really never expected. In fact, it was totally off our radar. We never thought that this would ever open up for us. I remember many years ago, I think when God TV Asia came out first, we contacted them and the, the cost was so, so high. We never thought we'd ever be able to get there. The standards of the programming also were very high. But this year, just they called us in May and just everything just came together. God television has been on and it's just great. The people were there to help us do it. Uh, we are part of Vision India, training about 8,600 young people from 15 North Indian states, training uh, these young people, imparting into their lives. And our publications have been such a great impact. In Vision India alone, we gave out 144,000 pieces of our publication in Hindi. 1,44,000 pieces. Just imagine. Just in Vision India alone. And then, in addition, that's not counting out all the other publications that go out, thousands that go out every month free. So God just blessed us to do that, and uh, uh, our short-term Bible college in Champa, we graduated 45 students. Again, uh, it was just great, great blessing to do that. Our young people went to Chhatarpur, helped out in the hospital there. Uh, two new locations opened up in Bangalore, the east and the west. Uh, APC Mangalore moved into the city, and a great response from the students uh, in the city. Uh, and just so much more, so many, so many things that God's done in the life of our church, um, and we are so grateful to it. For that, but we are only in the beginning. Amen? We're not, this is not the end. We're just getting started. Tell your neighbor, we're just getting started. <laughs> Amen. This morning, I want to speak to us on the topic the greatest faith ever preached. Over the last several Sundays, we've been talking about several things the greatest love ever known, the greatest story ever told, the greatest life ever lived. And this morning, I want to conclude our series here by talking about the greatest faith ever preached. The faith that you and I have is the greatest faith, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the greatest faith that was ever preached, that has been and is being preached on the face of this earth. And as we go through the message this morning, you'll understand why. You know, Jesus made this uh, statement in Matthew 24, 14. He said, this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel will be preached in all the nations. And then the end will come. This gospel must be preached in all the nations. Then the end will come. I mean, by looking at what's happening around the world, we can say we're pretty close to that because truly the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached across the nations. But it is very interesting to go back to the very beginning and just reflect on the journey that God's people have made in preaching this great faith and taking this great faith to the nations. And that's what I want us to do this morning. Just to go back to the very beginning and trace through history how the gospel of Jesus Christ, how this great faith has come today to be preached across the nations. 
There is much to be told and many names to be mentioned. And obviously we will not be able to cover everything in detail. But I want us to, I want to highlight some of the, the key things that have happened to bringing us to this day. Let's turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, to where it all began. In Mark 16, verses 14 to 19. In Mark 16, 14 to 19. The first 30 years of the very first century was the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He died approximately in AD 30, AD 33. That was the first 30 years. So here we pick up the story at the very, just before his ascension into heaven in Mark 16, verse 14. It says, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Can you imagine? These 11, belie- 11 disciples of Jesus did not believe the resurrection. I mean, these 11 had been with Jesus for three and a half years. They had seen him do all the mighty miracles. They had seen him raise the dead. But when it came down to them believing in his resurrection, they didn't believe. It says Jesus had to scold them. He had to rebuke them for their unbelief and the hardness of heart. Because they didn't believe that he indeed had been risen from the dead, had been raised from the dead. He rebuked them. But what is really interesting to me is that to these unbelieving disciples, Jesus gives the great commission. In the very next verse, verse 15, after he corrects them for their unbelief, he tells them this. He says, go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. To whom? To 11 people who are still struggling to believe in his resurrection. God has more faith in you and me than we ourselves, we have in ourselves many times. To 11 unbelieving disciples, he gives the great commission. He's saying, through these 11 people, I'm going to get the gospel to the whole world. And then he gives them some promises. He says, he who believes, verse uh, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out devils. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out everywhere. They preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So these 11 unbelieving disciples, having received the great commission, they obeyed. And they began to do the work. And from, that, from there, we are very, where we are today. It's an interesting journey to see how this great faith that we have and we believe has been preached across the nations. And that's what I want us to take us in a journey through. Starting from the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. The book of Acts records the first 30 years of the history of the church. From its inception to the first 30 years. From approximately AD 30 
on to when the last chapter of the book of Acts was written, which was about AD 63 or AD 64. About 30 years is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And we know about how the apostles went about preaching, beginning in Jerusalem, spreading to Samaria, into Judea, and into the other parts of the earth. The Mediterranean world at that time was reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is also interesting to note is that out of the 12 apostles, at least eight of them were martyred for their faith. At least eight. It is quite possible that more were also killed. We do not just show off how they died. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Bartholomew was crucified upside down in uh, Armenia. James was stoned to death by the Jews in Jerusalem. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod. Simon Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. Philip was crucified upside down in Turkey. Thomas came to India and was killed here. Matthias, the one who replaced Judas Iscariot, was stoned to death in Ethiopia. John, the beloved disciple, is the only one that we know of who died of old age. The other three, we're not sure. They, it is possible that they also were crucified for the preaching of this great faith. What I do want to highlight is this, that these men would not have given their lives for something they were not totally convinced about. Amen? Because they started off unbelieving, as unbelievers. They would not believe the resurrection of Jesus, but they ended up Dying, giving their life for that faith. Amen? Which tells us that this faith is very valid. Otherwise, these men would not have died preaching that faith. Paul, another, another apostle, I mean, another man who, who wasn't one of the twelve, but he was a New Testament apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He too was beheaded in Rome. Under Emperor Nero. Taken outside the city and killed. So the first hundred years of the apostolic church, the early church, saw many people give their lives for the sake of the preaching of the gospel. It was not an easy beginning. As you understand, Jesus was born during the time of Emperor Caesar Augustus. The Roman Empire covered the entire Mediterranean region at that time. And as the church was born in Jerusalem in AD 30 and began to spread, initially the Romans thought that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. It's another one of those many sects, another one of those many philosophers, people coming and talking. But the faith spread so powerfully that they began to realize that Christianity was not just another sect of, of Judaism, but it was something independent. It was a movement independent of its own. The Christians were called, the believers were first called Christians in the place called Antioch. That was from where Paul and Barnabas went out as missionaries. Antioch and Syria. And they 
meaning of the word Christian that was given was simply followers of Christ or soldiers of Christ. And soon in the Roman Empire, it was a sin to be a Christian. Because as a Christian, they thought you were into pagan doing all kinds of practices like eating some man's blood and drinking somebody's flesh, eating somebody's flesh and drinking his blood and, and all of that. And they refused to bow and worship the emperor, the Roman emperor. Because after Caesar, Augustus, the emperors who came after him demanded worship. And the Christians refused to do that. So very soon, by about AD 54, when Emperor Nero was rule, ruling over the Roman Empire, he was a great grandson of Caesar Augustus. He came to power at the age of 18 in AD 54. By that time, Nero was in charge. It was a sin to be a Christian. You could be killed just for being a Christian without having done anything wrong. The only crime is you are a Christian. You're ready? You could be killed. So it is interesting to look back and see how did the church transition from the early apostles, the first apostles on to the second, the third generation on to where we are today. And I want to highlight the names of some men that, and, and people who preached this faith that we have today for us to realize that this is the greatest faith that was ever preached and the price that was paid to bring the faith to us today. Some of the key people in the next 400 years that you and I should know is a man named Ignatius of Antioch. He was the second or third bishop of Antioch, the same church from which Paul and Barnabas had been sent out as missionaries to take the gospel to the Gentile world. He was the first post-New Testament martyr after Stephen and, and James who were killed and the apostles themselves. As the bishop of Antioch, the church in Antioch was one of was the most powerful Christian church at that time. And so Ignatius being the bishop, the leader of this church was a threat to the Roman Empire. So he was taken from Antioch to Rome where he was killed. He gave his life. For leading a church. Polycarp, he was the bishop of Smyrna. He was taken and burnt alive by the Roman soldiers at the age of 86. This is what he said while he was being killed. He said, he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre and move. Without the security you desire from nails. He was again a very important bishop because he was in that transition period as the church moved out from the early apostles to where, to the next second generation of believers. A very important figure. A lot we can learn from the letters he wrote as he was being escorted into Rome from, from, his, from his church. He was escorted to Rome along the way. He wrote several short letters knowing that his time of death was imminent. He wrote short letters to various churches including the believers at Rome and saying, don't prevent them from burning me alive. I do not want to be crucified. I want to be burnt alive and I'm prepared for that death. Justin Martyr, the defender of true philosophy, he was a wandering philosopher. He was in search for truth 
until one day he met an old man who said, go read the scriptures. And so he went and, and he began to read the Old Testament prophets and the writing of the early, early apostles. And, and uh, this is what he said. He said, a fire was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the prophets and these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. That is how and why I became a philosopher. And I wish that everyone felt the same way I do. And Justin Marta was the first person to move into Rome and start a Christian school. Through his idea, through the, the propagation of Christian ideas, he tried to influence people in Rome, right in Rome. By doing what he did, one day he and his assistants were pulled up by the Roman soldiers said, Will you renounce the faith or are you going to die? And here's what he responded. He said, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. If we are punished for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hope to be saved. He and all of his, all of his assistants were beheaded. There are many other names of great men who preached the faith during these early days of the Christian church. I want to highlight a few others. Anthony of Egypt is known as the greatest desert father. Anthony was born in Egypt to very wealthy parents. His parents died when he was about 20, left all of that inheritance for him. But he was desperate to encounter God, and so he gave up all of that. And the only way he knew to seek God was to leave everything and go away. So he went and spent several years in the tombs trying to meet with God. And from there he went into a deserted fort where he spent 20 years in silence and in, in, in just seeking God in prayer and searching and seeking. One man who wrote his story said, quoted him saying, the mind of every soul is strong when the pleasures of the body are weak. And with that in mind, he just isolated himself to seek God. And after 20 years, when he came out and began to speak and preach, people were amazed at the wisdom and the encouragement that he brought to them. He died at the age of 105 in the deserts of Egypt. But Antony... Of Egypt, the greatest desert father was the inspiration to what we will see later as the monasteries and the monks that were formed during the Middle Ages. He was the inspiration for all of that. Today you and I are sitting inside a Jesuit institution. Many of these institutions around the world. The man who inspired much of that is Anthony of Egypt. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we come to talk about the Middle Ages. Eusebius, the bishop of Caesarea, is the father and the maker of church history. 300 years of church, of church history had elapsed and nobody sat down to document what was happening in the life of the church. So here comes this man who takes on this never attempted before assignment of saying, I am going to document the history of the first 300 years of the history of the church. Nobody had ever done that. 
People had written bits and pieces. The Romans were keeping their records. We have the early the, the epistles. We had different people writing small things here and there. But nobody made a concentrated, focused effort to document the history of the church. And Eusebius was the first person to do it. And he's known as the father of church history. He spent time documenting history. This is what he said as he began to do it. He said, I feel inadequate to do church history justice as a first to venture on such an undertaking. A traveler on a lonely and untrodden path. But I pray that God may guide me and the power of the Lord assist me. For I have not found even the footprints of any predecessors on this path. Only traces in which some have left various accounts of the times in which they lived. So he spent his time writing a complete detailed history of the church. And it is through his writings that we today understand much of what happened in the first 300 years of the early church. Jerome, another person you and I need to know, he was a scholar in Be of Bethlehem. A Bible translator whose translation of the Bible lasted 1,000 years. He was the first person to translate the Old and the New Testament into Latin from the original scriptures. He used the original Hebrew and the original Greek to translate it into Latin, the language that was in use at that time. And this translation of the Bible lasted for 1,000 years. Nobody ever attempted to do it again for 1,000 years. And he set the standard for all good translations of the Bible, that every good translation of the Bible must go back to the original manuscripts of the Hebrew and the Greek and translate directly from there. He set the standard to do that. He spent 23 years of his life translating the Bible into Latin. Unfortunately, while it did good at that time, a thousand years later, Latin was no longer in use. And so it became a problem because the Bible was only available in Latin and not many people knew how to read it. And it actually became a problem because nobody else attempted to do what Jerome did until much later on. So these were some great men who preached the faith, who laid the foundations of the faith that we have today. It was around this time that things began to change. The Christian faith became so powerful in the Roman Empire. And in 312 AD, the emperor of Rome, Constantine himself, embraced Jesus Christ. In 314, he, Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan where he made, where he said that it was, from now on, Christians were free to practice their own religion. There was freedom of worship and special favors on the church. In 340 AD, Christianity was favored in the Roman Empire. And 381, emperor, the emperor then made Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. So what's notable is this, that in in the, within the first 500 years, Something that began with Jesus commissioning 11 unbelieving disciples. Which at one point was so oppressed by the Roman Empire. Eventually became so powerful it was embraced by the very empire 
that tried to crush it out. Nobody could stop the growth and the spread of this great faith. Amen. When we move into the next era of history, the next thousand year period from 480 to about 1480, which is known as the Middle Ages, unfortunately the good that began by the Roman emperor embracing himself, embracing Christianity and making it the state religion had its negatives. Emperor Constantine began to get directly involved in the affairs of the church. He began to build these great buildings, the church buildings in Rome for people, Christians to come and worship. He was the one who decided to have these big throne-like chairs for the bishops to sit on. So today when you go into churches and see these huge big chairs on which the bishop or the preacher sits, you know who started it. He was the one who brought in liturgy into the church in order to dictate and direct how worship should be performed. So worship therefore moved away from spontaneous spirit-led worship into worship based on liturgy. And because it was a state religion, hordes of people, unbelievers who had no connection with Christianity moved into the church to receive the benefits of the church. They brought in all their practices, their own pagan practices into the church and made it part of the church. And there was nobody to say, that's not right. And soon you had a church that embraced the worship of images and idols that gave out what was known as licenses or indulgences, which was essentially licenses to sin, that began the practice of praying for the dead and so on. And the church plunged into moral decline. What we now know as the Dark Ages. And in an attempt to somehow preserve themselves, individuals moved out of the church into isolation and trying to seek God. And those individuals soon gathered together in small groups, which are known as monasteries. And these people came to be known as monks. And they just set themselves aside to seek God. And these men were very powerful because they spent their time in prayer. They had great experiences with God. And visitations. But they lived separate from the real world. But they had an important role to play. Because they were instrumental in preserving the records and the documents of the church. They preserved it. The many great names in relation to the the monasteries of their day. Starting as I mentioned with Anthony of Egypt. Who was the inspiration to this whole move of, of monasteries and monks. Many great names. You might recognize some of them. Augustine, St. Augustine, as you know, as he's known, is the Bishop of Hippo of North Africa. He was an influential thinker and writer. Francis of Assisi and many others. So this is how the church went through for almost 1,000 years. The church itself was in, in darkness. No truth being preached. Forms of worship instituted by the 
by the government was being followed inside the church, institutionalized. And then on by themselves with these monks seeking God and having great spiritual experiences outside. It was about 1148, 1100, 40, 80, or early 1200s, when a man named Peter Waldo in southern France stood up and began to preach and teach simplicity of the gospel. He began to say, no man can serve two masters, God or mammon. He began to speak against the Pope and the Catholic Church, exposing the excesses of the Catholic Church and the dogmas and pointing out the errors with purgatory and transubstantiation and so on. But he was promptly excommunicated by the Pope in 1184. So much before Martin Luther came on the scene, there was already somebody lifting up a voice for the truth. Almost 300 years later comes Martin Luther in 1483 to 1546 AD. He was a priest and professor of theology and he stood up. He was part of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. He stood up and he began to speak out against these things and in October 13, 15, 17, he walked to the, the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed on the door his 95 thesis. And this began the Reformation. But it was not Martin Luther alone who was a force behind the Reformation. There were other men that we should be aware of. Johannes Brenz, a, a German theologian and a a contemporary of Martin Luther who also stood for the truth being preached. Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland also led a reformation, a reform movement that gave birth to what was later known as the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists are very important because they were the ones who preached for the first time the very things we are preaching today. They said things like baptism is only for believers. And we say the same thing today. They're the first who said priesthood is for all believers. All believers are kings and priests unto God. We say the same thing today. They were the first, I mean, they were the ones who came out and said, we believe in the charismatic, prophetic working of the Spirit. We believe in the same thing today. So this movement of reformation began in the power of the Spirit. And the Anabaptists are very important because through them, they spread the movement of reformation into Germany and Holland and France. And some of the Anabaptists, descendants of this movement, you and I would recognize the Amish in the United States. The Mennonite church came out of the Anabaptists. And the Mennonites have had a great impact on our nation in missions. The Baptists and the Quakers of England all came out of this movement. And so from that, the, from Reformation on through time, from the 1500s through where we are today, beginning with the Reformation, this gospel began to be preached on all continents. And it's just amazing to look at how God began to, see, how the the fire of the faith began to spread across every continent. 
in North America, in South America, in Africa, in Europe, in the Middle East, in China, across Asia, in Australia and the Pacific Islands. Amazing to see how God began to raise up mighty men and women to do great things. But I want to skip all that and come straight to our own nation, India. And just look at the history of the church in our nation. It begins back in 52 AD when Thomas, one of the 12 apostles, comes to our own nation. And he preaches along the Malabar coast. Heals the sick, casts out devils. He's known to have said to have established seven congregations. But shortly thereafter he was killed. In Mylapur. There are several others who came into India after that. In 189 AD, there was a missionary named Pantius from Alexandria who arrived in India. In 1293, Marco Polo comes to India and he describes the tomb of St. Thomas in um, 1502. Vasco da Gama also comes here. In 1542, the first Jesuit missionaries arrived, Francis Xavier. And he teaches the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments to fisher folk along, along the Coromandel Coast. And in a single month, he baptizes 10,000 people. There's another Jesuit priest who comes into, in 1606, Robert Nobili comes in. He spends 50 years in Madurai. He adopts Brahmin culture. And he becomes a scholar and a poet here in our own nation. More Jesuit missionaries come in 1710. And uh, one, of, one of them notable, notable is a man named Constant, Constanzo. Who becomes a great Tamil scholar himself. But I want to highlight a few others. Who you and I may be familiar with and, and, and are who've had a significant impact on the history of the church and the preaching of the faith in our own nation. William Carey comes to India in the early part of the 18, towards the end of the 1700s. He comes to Calcutta, spends over 40 years of his life in our own nation. Translates the Bible, the scriptures into Bengali and Sanskrit and portions of it into several other Indian languages, establishes the college in Sarampore, he fights against uh, social evils and so on. And, and he leaves a lasting impact on the preaching of the faith in our nation. Another important person that you and I must know in our his the history of our faith in our nation is Pandita Ramabai. was a lady who fought against the abuse of women in Hindu traditions. She fought on the behalf of young women who were, and widows who were used as temple prostitutes. In, 80, in 1889, she established the Mukti Mission in Pune, where she had over 1,500 a, a residents, women and children, protecting them from abuse and, and so on. But here's a notable thing. In 1904, there was 
the Welsh revival happening in Wales. In 1906, there was the Azusa Street revival in California that then became the Pentecostal movement that affected the world. What many people don't remember or know is that in 1905, in between these two years, at Mukti Mission, in Pandit Ramabai's own Mukti Mission, there was a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where these little children began to speak in tongues and have visitations of God. And a detailed record of that was made. So right here in our nation, in 1905, was a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit before the Azusa Street Revival. It affected the globe. Another important man in the history of the preaching of the faith in India is Sadhu Sundar Singh. About the same time as Pandita Ramabai. Sundar Singh encountered, had a visitation of Jesus as a young man. He gave his heart to the Lord. And then he devoted the rest of his life, starting in 1906, he devoted the rest of his life to the preaching of the gospel. He was known as the apostle of the bleeding feet because he would walk miles to preach the gospel. He traveled across northern India into the Himalayas, into Afghanistan, Kashmir, and into Tibet, preaching about Jesus. And he had a great impact on the preaching of this faith in our nation. Nobody knows when and how exactly he died because he was off on a journey into Tibet when they last saw him. Amy Carmichael was another great woman whom God used in our nation. She was born in Ireland. And she was a Protestant missionary who came to India. She spent about 55 years of her life living in southern India, about 30 kilometers from the tip of southern India. And she focused on rescuing young girls who were being used as prostitutes in the temple. And she, so she established this Donavar Fellowship in Tamil Nadu. But over 1,000 children were cared for and protected. She herself dressed in Indian clothes. She dyed her skin with dark coffee in order to look like Indian women. And she would travel miles just to rescue young children from a life of prostitution in the temples. She was a great writer. She wrote over 35 books during her time here in India. When one missionary asked her saying, what is missionary life like? Amy Carmichael re replied saying, missionary life is simply a chance to die. She's quoted as saying, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. Her life as a missionary has inspired many, many others. To do the same. Ida Scarvas is another important person we must know in the history of the Christian church. She was a third generation missionary. Her parents were serving in missions here. She came, she saw, she said, I will never become a missionary. Never do this in my life. But when she saw the struggles of Indian women, many dying in childbirth, during childbirth, she went back to the United States, got herself educated, and then came back to India. And she started a little, she started to work serving women, early 1900s. And she started a little school just to train people to assist her in her medical work in serving Indian women. 
But eventually that grew into what we know today as one of the leading Christian medical colleges in India. That stands for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God is doing amazing things in our nation in these days. And, and uh, we won't have time to reflect on everything that's happening across our nation. But I just want to mention just two more names. Dr. D.G.S. Dinakaran, again an amazing story of how God would raise an ordinary young man from Chennai, make him a prophet in our nation, and have such a big impact across our nation. His crusades would draw hundreds of thousands of people. He became the inspiration probably to more preachers and teachers and ministries in our nation probably than any other person. Many ministers across our nation today have drawn their inspiration from his life. And what's amazing to see is that across our nation, God is raising up huge churches with congregations of tens of thousands of people. In Hyderabad, there's a congregation that have more than 50,000 people every Sunday. Chennai too. What's very interesting is, in Allahabad, What's happening today, the Eshu Darbar, where more than 50 to 60,000 people gather every Sunday to worship God. In 1919, Dr. Sam Higginbottom founded the Allahabad Agriculture Institute. It's now known as the Sam Higginbottom Institute of Agriculture, Technology and Sciences. And in that university was a professor named Dr. Rajendra Bilal, he was a vice chancellor of the university. And in 2000, he got filled with baptized in the Holy Ghost and started praying in other tongues. And God began to use him powerfully in signs, wonders, and miracles. So he started a fellowship in his home. And soon that grew to about, you know, and then he had to move to the church. And there were about 500, 700 people gathering on the weekends. Remember, he's a professor. He's a vice chancellor of this university. And God is beginning to use him like this. And that moved out to the open field. And I think probably from 2001 onwards, more than 50 to 60,000 people are gathering every Sunday to worship God in Al-Habath. What was once considered an area and a region of India once considered the graveyard of preachers. God is doing something that baffles the human mind. It's happening in our day. And God is using a professor to preach the gospel. So this is the greatest faith ever preached across the nation. More than one third of the world's population today identify themselves with this faith. There's no count of exactly how many believers are there. But all we know is it's just expanding and growing like wildfire across the nations. Amen. Nobody can stop it. No empire, no government, no legislation, nothing can stop the spread of this great faith. This gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. The question I want to put before you and me this morning is this. 
The faith we have is the greatest faith that has ever been preached, ever proclaimed, ever believed, ever lived throughout the ages. It's our turn now. Amen. Others have lived their lives. They've done their part. The question is, what are you and I willing to do in our day, in our time? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to sacrifice? What, are you willing, what price are you willing to pay? How much are you willing to stretch for this great faith that's being preached across the nations? Romans 10, 13-15 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on somebody in whom they have not heard? How can they hear about somebody who, unless somebody goes to preach? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Unless they go. Amen. I want to submit to you, Esther 4.14. Who knows whether you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. God didn't cause you and me to be born in 8054 or 8060 when Emperor Nero would have killed us. We have been crucified upside down, burnt alive or thrown to the animals. We never know. But he caused you and me to be born this day in this hour. And I believe it's for a purpose. Question is, what are you going to do with this great faith? With this greatest faith that's ever been preached? Are you going to keep it to yourself? Are you going to say, God, make me somebody who will take it to my city and take it to my nation? Many, 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 many. Time wouldn't tell to recount the names, the journeys, the sermons, the sacrifices that have been made through the centuries. But today, it rests on you and me. What will you do? 2013 is coming up and we as a church are just preparing several things to move into North India, several areas. Begin to affect our own city, look at other cities. The question is, will you do something? Will you go out into our city, into our nation and do something? I want to look at these great men. There's Billy Graham, there's Yonggi Cho, the pastor of the world's largest church, Al Roberts, Teal Osborne, great men whose lives still speak to us today. Let's rise to our feet. Stand, we did our parts. Just want to call the worship team up, please. I want to take a few moments right now just to my flight to Mangalore has been delayed so I don't have to rush out. <laughs> I'll just probably be here till 12.30 and then go. What will you do for this great faith? It really doesn't matter about our abilities or talents. Remember Jesus spoke to 11 unbelieving disciples and he gave them the great commission. 
in the midst of their unbelief, in the midst of this struggle to just believe that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead, he said, go preach this gospel. Go preach this gospel. The God just looking at our willingness to obey and say, God, I'm willing to obey. I'm willing to do something for this great faith that you've privileged me to be a part of. What will you do? You and I may never be crucified upside down, never be burnt alive, never be thrown into animals. I don't think that's what God's looking for. What he's looking for is willingness and what he's looking for is obedience. Amen. So as you stand here this morning, would you take a moment please just to pray and say, God, I'm willing. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do for this great faith. In my city, in my nation, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to be a history maker. Not just for my name's sake, but Lord, this is not about me. This is about people coming to know Jesus Christ. It's about souls being saved. Times have changed. People have come and gone. It's our chance. It's our turn. How will you respond? The gospel still needs to be preached. How will you respond? We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and 